All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, Nick and myself chat with musician Devin Townsend about the Dark Crystal, inspiration, creativity, meditation, marijuana, strapping young lad, and more. As always, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Greetings, humans. I am Ziltoid, the Omniscient. I have come far from across the Omniverse. You shall fetch me. Your universe's ultimate cup of coffee. Black. You have five Earth minutes. Make it perfect. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature One overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. (laughs) Just so we have a platform to die from here, Devin, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? All of the above. But the trouble that I caused was typically just for my own mental health rather than anything uh, that could be viewed as even remotely badass. I built forts, but most often out of the cushions in the family room. And anytime I did outside, they were always, they wouldn't last a storm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they, I think in a, in a zombie apocalypse now, I'd be an asset, but at the time I was certainly not. So... <laughs> You might want to go to your buddy's fort. <laughs> Girls were certainly allowed in mine, though. <laughs> oh, there you go. Whereabouts yeah, did you grow up? Vancouver, BC. Gotcha, gotcha. Where are you guys located? South Carolina. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'm in Alabama. Nice, man. Yeah, and in terms of being a troublemaker, nah, not really. I was in my own head so much of the time that it seemed like if I wanted to remain there, which I certainly did, it was much more efficient for me not to... Uh, not to get shit elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine building forts in BC. You'd have to snowproof them. We've been we haven't had rain or snow here in months. We're like 38, which is like basically 100 degrees. We're about the same as Seattle because we're about an hour and a half up from Seattle, so it's it's about the same. When you get into the middle of Canada, that's when you get to you know similar to Montana or 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 whatever, where it's just plumes of Arctic hell. But in Vancouver, <laughs> and it's it's pretty temperate. When you were growing up, did you have any favorite authors or any kind of genre of books that you lean towards, fantasy, anything like that? Mm, I loved, when I got a little older, I was really into manga. But when I was very young, it was probably Roald Dahl. Okay. You know, James, Giant Peach, Fantastic Mr. Fox, that sort of thing. I was such a, the movie The Dark Crystal changed my life so entirely that I followed that rabbit hole, but less about stories at that point and more about conceptual design i remember i had a book that because brian froud was the conceptual designer for the dark crystal and he had done a bunch of children's books prior that had the same kind of 
artistic slant that I liked. But I was never really interested in the stories. In fact, when it came to stories, I was probably much more inclined to, to go towards Garfield. <laughs> <laughs> they're short. You know, they're easier to digest. You get shit done, man. You got to right. be efficient. Right. <laughs> so Jim Henson fan growing up then, huh? Oh, yeah. In fact, I was such a fan that um, when I was uh, eight years old, I sent a fan letter to him. And I think my parents were probably a little hesitant because they thought I was going to be disappointed. But he sent back a letter with a package full of stuff. And I'm sure it wasn't him, you know, because the signature looks suspiciously perfect. But it's like, <laughs> uh, as a kid, that was like, it was a thrill. Plus, it was validating at the same time i could i could say to my parents see see you know jim harris jim henson's got my back and then fraggle rock came out and i was like ah <laughs> <laughs> so was it just the dark crystal were you a labyrinth fan at all i'm a labyrinth didn't really do it for me and I, I think it's the people in my life who were a few years younger than me that was they had the similar effect on them that dark crystal had on me but it was just the darkness of the dark crystal there was just something about the the fact that it was just monsters and mm. it was this real sort of realistic thing and it didn't have david bowie and a pair of leotards you know what i mean <laughs> that <laughs> i've heard you talk a little bit about that before about about the dark crystal and, and can you elaborate a little bit on the work ethos that it inspired in you like like doing things behind the scenes and, and all the yeah. stuff that people don't see that was that was what i took from that um more than anything because as much as the movie had an impact on me, it was the making of film that came out on uh, public television around the same time that I was just so fascinated with with the with the process of making a world. It just seemed endlessly intriguing. And and the thing about that making of the world that that team had done that was just so fantastic is that as lore would have it only 30% of the world that they created ended up in the film. So their intention from the beginning was to make this world for themselves. At least that's how I interpreted it. And uh, I love the idea that if you were strategic enough with your, <laughs> with your business, you could potentially be in a scenario where you just get together with your buddies and you make a world. Like that just seemed incredible. And I like the fact that it was tangible too. I like the fact that that puppets had a form that you could interact with physically. And I think that on some level, that whole process that they went through to create that uh, inspired me in in obviously a very different field, but in a similar way. Like I'll I'll make huge amounts of material for each album, and then just whittle it down to the things that seem appropriate for the theme. But to have the opportunity to do that required me to sort of become autonomous and uh, find ways to create that was separate from from having to depend on other people in a lot of ways. I mean, I still do, of course, but not in a not in a practical way. Like I depend on people for PR or, or labels or management or tours or things like this. But for the creation of it, I can do it all myself to the mm -hmm. extent that I'm I'm satisfied with. And and I think. Had it not been for The Dark Crystal and, and probably Tron as well, the original Tron film, you know, I don't know if I would be doing it the same way that I'm doing it now. When you saw The Dark Crystal, were you already involved in music at that point in your life? Were you already playing in bands and stuff? I, I was like eight. 
Oh, okay, you know, okay, gotcha. As as old as I am, I'm I'm like uh, I'm not quite that old, <laughs> but I went I went with my dad, and I think you know because uh, Star Wars I think came out in what was it seventy six or seventy seventy seven seventy seven I think yeah yeah so I would have been five when Star Wars came out, and then I probably would have been eight when the Dark Crystal came out, and you know that's a formative <laughs> that's a formative uh, developmental period. So if you fill it full of whatever it gets full of, you know, exorcist or, you know, dark crystal or, you know, some weird family member, even it's like, it's going to make a pretty imprint. <laughs> was that your first uh, movie you saw in theaters? No, star Wars, I think was the first one I saw. It was in a drive-in and uh, it's funny because the past 30 years have gone by so quickly with all the work that's been done that, I think it's quaint sometimes when I think back to how we participated in movies as a kid. So I was a five-year-old and my dad and mom had this piece of shit Pontiac that, uh, you know, four-door probably weighed seven tons, you know, about the size of a Honda Civic, but that sort of thing. And when we went to the drive-in, they had these posts that you drive up to and they had the speaker on this coily cable, like a mono speaker, and you just clipped it to your window and then rolled your window up and then you could... You could watch the movie and and as a five-year-old i remember thinking star wars i was too young to really put together any sort of thought of what it could be all i knew is i wanted to be in bed i didn't want to be you know at some movie about stars and then all of a sudden you know darth vader comes out and i'm just peeking over the top and i was like oh wait <laughs> this is all right man <laughs> yeah so that was probably the first one that i saw and, and then but you know that whole era I, a lot of it for me was musical theater like uh uh, not going to the theater, but the musicals that they had in the 70s, like Jesus Christ Superstar, Paint Your Wagon, Fiddler on the Roof, West Side Story. Like My, my parents gave my sister and I a, a constant stream of, of musical, I guess theater, you could call it. But that was probably my formative films that I saw were those ones. Were your parents musicians or were they just uh, really into, into music? They were musical. But not musicians, no. My dad chopped his finger off on a on a planer when he was young, so that ended his banjo career pretty quickly. Oh, he and, could have uh, been the Tony Iommi of banjo. <laughs> <laughs> Make it out of wood. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, it was there was a lot of music in our in our world. It was actually a, a fundamental part of our upbringing. But no, there was no musicians per se it was just everybody sang and played so Devin, uh this is something i like to ask everyone uh, what scared you as a kid oh god where do i even start <laughs> <laughs> I feel that let, let me think let me think i mean that'd be the best one that could counter and, and underline everything that came after that i think i was afraid of anger because because there were certain members of the family that when they got anger it, it was without much rationale so from a very young age i was afraid of people's anger because i couldn't quantify it like i didn't know why they're angry so i think that what ended up happening as a result is you end up becoming a people pleaser in some way because you just want to keep everything at bay and it took me a long time like strapping on lad and all that to sort of work through that to recognize that anger was just a part of being human and just because you were taught that it exists without logic um, doesn't necessarily mean that that's an insurmountable task. You just have to wrap your head around it. Probably that and, uh, uh, oh, change money and jewelry. Yeah. 
absolutely hate it. Like I hate touching anything to do with jewelry. Fucking hate change money. I hate it, man. So between anger, change money, and jewelry, there we go. <laughs> hey, those count. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that a is that a germ thing or a tactile thing? Well, I think it it <laughs> stems back to my mother's purse. She had this. She had this big, endless, you know, catacomb of a of a purse. But we didn't have a lot of money when we were kids, so we would share gum. Like my sister and I would get half a piece of gum each, but it would be rolling around at the bottom of her purse. Yeah. So when she brought the gum out, it had like an earring stuck in it or a penny <laughs> on the part that you're gonna eat, and she'd be like, well, you know, here you go." And I remember just being like, "Ugh." Right. So. <laughs> Uh, so Devin, when did you pick up your first instrument? Was it a guitar? It was that banjo that my dad had because bluegrass was a huge thing in Johnny Cash and bluegrass and Irish folk music were were a lot of where it came from because my parents were you know from the '60s, so there was a lot of that folk influence that was huge. So everybody played piano or acoustic guitar, and my dad had that banjo that was just kicking around the house, and from a very young age, I would just hack away at it. Played it like a drum, because it looked like a snare, I guess, just hit it. <laughs> and then um, there was also a, arguably the worst acoustic guitar ever that was floating around the house like a beat dog. <laughs> and we used to at Christmas, a lot of it was just my grandfather would be singing Johnny Cash songs. So uh, I guess that acoustic guitar was the first actual guitar that I played. And that would have been in my life from the very beginning. Gotcha. So how early on are you? Well, how early on do you start to want to make your own music? Yeah, I had a proclivity for it because I could pick out melodies on the piano. Um, but I never really gave it too much too much thought. It was just something that came reasonably naturally but my whole my passion was <laughs> motorbikes like that's all i wanted to do was just ride dirt bikes so when i was 10 11 12 i was convinced that i was that my job i was going to ride motocross like that was going to be my deal and so when i was 12 i had mowed lawns enough that i managed to put it together 140 bucks to get a like a honda xr75 which Damn. was a four stroke yeah man but it was like like my parents car weighed a ton down the street from where we lived uh, all my other friends we would go to to the gravel pits and we would just drive around on our motorbikes but they all managed to get a two-stroke like they had like the yz80 and or the kawasaki version and it had a mono shock in the back like a single shock but because i wanted to hang i had my four stroke it had four four shocks i just took one of my rear shocks off and um then <laughs> Then we went to the gravel pit, and the first jump that I went over, the shock <laughs> broke off the thing and hit me in the tailbone. And I spent I spent much of grade six on crutches. In fact, I did my science fair experiment on on vertebrae because I had fucked up my back. <laughs> and at that point, you know, my motocross uh, career abruptly came to a halt, and I started playing guitar. <laughs> That'll do it every time. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So do you remember your very first time on stage, whatever you consider that to be, school play, church, what have yeah, you? Yeah, sure. I, um, we did a talent show. Actually, you know what? The talent show is, it was reasonably successful because I could play like a, a version of Eruption that was not good, but also, you know, in a gym, it sounded passable. Yeah. So I'll leave that one. But the actual first performance I did is that me and my friends in, in sixth grade decided that we had a band right but not none of us played instruments so we called ourselves manta and we were like we had this cloak for our mascot 
And Buddy was a bass player, Buddy was a guitar player, Buddy was a drummer, and I was the singer. But I'd never sung. And so finally, I remember we were at my house and I was sitting on the top of the bunk bed. And the guitar player in the band's like, dude, if you're going to sing, we gotta he- we got to hear you sing. And so uh, I, I tried singing Heaven's on Fire by Kiss. just sounded like, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you've you seen those videos with the goats that are screaming? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I got fired from the band. And so uh, my first performance was was fraught with difficulty, man. Hey, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> at least, at least Steve, I liked the the goat bleeding. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a niche market, but but one nonetheless. <laughs> so when do you in turn? When does that switch flip in you internally, and you start taking music? Uh, I guess serious. You try to make a career out of it. Maybe send demos out and stuff. Yeah, I was probably about 15. Um, I'd been playing guitar for a few years, and, and in the 80s, guitar was like um, a competitive uh, sport, more so than a musical venture. So it became what I would imagine, you know, online gaming or, or things like that would be the equivalent of now to a certain degree. So we all were fetishizing technique, and, and I just started to really get into the acrobatics of guitar. I'd always been musically minded, and, and at that point, I started, you know, as much I was as much as I was into instrumental guitar stuff. I also liked pop music and Metallica and Enya or Def Leppard or you know ambient new age, whatever. Like it was a pretty wide swath. But when I was about fifteen, I started getting into it, and I started sending out demos to Guitar Player magazine because they had this monthly thing where you send in a demo it had an address and then if the guy who was reviewing the demo mike varney liked it then you could be in the magazine and and that particular page that these unknown guitar players were featured on ended up being where you know ingve malmstein and paul gilbert and all these cats started their careers so i kept sending demos and photos of myself to this poor dude whom i met later on right but it never never amounted to anything but the process of learning how to record myself ended up when i was 18 years old or 17 becoming uh, a way for me to construct a couple of demo tapes that ultimately led to me working with steve Vai and getting signed to a label i mean you kind of just mentioned that but how do you how do you feel internally as a young man you know, you just said sending out all these demos, and then now, boom, you're the vocalist for Steve Vai, of all people. So, <laughs> it's like you try to play it off like nonchalant, but it's like it was crazy, man. And and it was also simultaneously really. This sounds weird, but it was actually simultaneously disheartening because I think there's a lot of romance that comes with not getting what you want. There's this sense that if you if it doesn't happen then that idealistic image of whatever it is will always exist. Right. There's nothing that has proved it otherwise. And so I had fetishized the whole idea of moving to Los Angeles and having an Ibanez guitar and, you know, knowing and and, and going to functions with these people whom I'd only seen in magazines without any expectation of it ever happening. And so when it did, it was like, Oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's just a dude and he's just a dude and that guy's really short and, you know, what I mean, and this guitar that I always wanted actually sort of sucks to play and, mm. you know what I mean, there's like all this stuff about it that just seemed like, you know, the, the, the illusion was shattered so quickly 
and it's not necessarily a bad thing in the long run. In fact, I think it worked in my favor because I got that idealism out of the way quickly enough that when I started to structure my my work and my own creative endeavors later on, uh, it was devoid of that. So so my relationships tended to be a little more straight up. I mean, it took some time for it to to settle, but when I started assembling people and working with people and and working towards my own goals it was it was pretty i think it was pretty realistic you know and i think it remains as such there's a few years in the 90s there that went a little off the rails but (laughs) but ultimately those brushes with with sudden success allowed you to sort of stay more down to earth when you really got into your own stuff later yeah, and I think that the reason why I was able to stay more down to earth is is because I was trying to prove a point in a weird way to myself. In hindsight, I can see that. So it wasn't that I was staying down to earth because I thought it was the appropriate move. I just thought it was, you know, I'm not going to be like other people. I'm going to be like this, and I'm going to remain rooted in this and that and the other thing. But the reality of that as well is that your life has changed, and you're not the same person anymore. And the people that you were around not all of them, but a lot of them are going to perceive you different and you're going to be in a different place. And just just by the virtue of, of the work that I had been involved with, I was resisting what I was becoming. And I think I tried to pass that off for, for a few years as being down to earth. But the lessons that came with that were, were there's certain scenarios where I either acted in a way that was inappropriate for the people I was around or I allowed things to happen to me that I shouldn't have allowed just because I didn't want to appear as if I was arrogant or, or, or what have you. And the process of learning is, is, is fundamental to the music, so I'm grateful for it. But, you know, man, it's, I was 19, I was 20 years old, whatever it was, and, and now I'm 51. The trial by fire has lasted for 30 years, man. Yeah. <laughs> Devin, you've been pretty open that, you know, those early years with Steve, you weren't the happiest because you couldn't express yourself. How early on did you notice that that was affecting you in those years? Well, to clarify, it had very little to do with Steve. You know, Steve offered me an incredible opportunity and, and, and it changed my life and has set me up in a scenario here where we're talking today. So, so before I, before I answer that further, it's important that that's, you know, right, a foregone right. conclusion there. But I wasn't happy because since the very beginning, well, at least since I started putting together my own musical thoughts, I had always perceived the nature of music to be rooted in something beyond people, like divine in a way. And then when I was in LA, all of a sudden I'm like, it's a wake up call. And again, it's not Steve, it's not any of the people around him, but it's Los Angeles, man. It's like, you know, it's it's the music industry and the acting industry. These are infamous for being populated with people that are trying, right? And maybe their connection to their work, there are people that, that have that, you know, Steve, of course, being one of them. But there's a lot of people that are just, it's a vehicle for, for validation or it's a vehicle for, for fame. And I found from a very young age, my nature was so awkward that being famous for me was really difficult because I was not, all it does is amplify who you are. And if you're able to be famous, if you're a professionally famous person, then 
you know, then you're probably going to be pretty adept at navigating it. But if you're already kind of like a dorky kid, and then all of a sudden you're just like a famous dorky kid, <laughs> it's like good luck, right? So I was upset that the vision that I had for music, which incidentally is separate from one's identity, in my opinion, uh, I was having to wait to do. I was like, I want to do this. I want to have orchestras and choirs and and I want to constantly create and I want to make puppet shows and I want to make ambient music and I want to make symphonies and I want to make pop music and I want to make brutal death metal and I you know what I mean it's like and I was chomping at the bit to do so but in order to get to the point where I could even start doing that I had to go to college first which was Steve Vai right and so it's got very little to do with with him or his organization I mean there's certain things that you know I disagreed with but it was much more that I was really fucking impatient did you actually end up going to college any degree I went to broadcasting college which is a college only in the loosest sense of the word right broadcasting college is the same as recording college <laughs> it's, it's the thing that your parents pay 20 grand for and then you can they can pretend you're in college and not just fucking around with music, right? <laughs> and um, and radio college was was like a C minus version of of recording college. So I went to be a DJ, but I remember distinctly having to do a project for that, where you have to make some radio commercial, where they give you some um, some product, and you have to make a, a you know. Well, there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> Sprite really refreshes or whatever. And I remember at the time going, oh, I fucking hate this. Oh, I hate this. And then I met a girl at the college. And then, yeah, I fell in love and then I failed. So my parents were out 20 grand and I never went to work at a radio. <laughs> it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, I guess it did, yeah. Uh, just a sidebar, because I think it's around the same time that you were working with Steve, but how did you meet Jason Newstead and you guys form your band? I was on tour with Steve. We did a tour in Europe, and we were opening for Aerosmith. It was Arenas, the sound man that we had, <clears throat> but he wasn't cutting it. And at one of the shows in the UK, after the show, a guy came backstage and said, Hello, my name is Big Mick. And I am the sound man for Metallica. Your sound man sucks, and I'm not doing anything. So I will come out and do sound for you guys if you take the band that I manage on tour with you as your opening band. That's the that's the, the stipulation. And that band was a band from the UK called the Wild Hearts. And after Steve Vai, Steve and I had a big blowout on tour, and I ended up doing a bunch of stupid shit and the stupid shit that I did really made the wild hearts think that I would be great for them. So they asked me to join the band and then I moved to the UK in 1992, 1993. I lived there for a year and, and worked with them and big Mick from Metallica was one of the two managers. And while we were on tour with the wild hearts, we went out with suicidal tendencies for like two months in Europe. And Big Mick and the singer from the Wild Hearts had a fist fight on tour. And then as Mick was leaving, he came up to me and says, listen, the guy from Metallica, Jason, does all these side projects. Uh, I think you and him would be really cool together. Do you mind if I put you in contact? And I was like, absolutely. That's that's amazing. Right. And so Jason contacted me and and we ended up doing a whole lot of things together and having a lot of fun. 
one of those things that we did together was called IRA. You know, we, it was me and Jason and Tom hunting from, from Exodus. And, and then I did three or four other projects, one with Dale from the Melvins and Scott from Caius and, and uh, another one with me and drummer from a band called Pansy Division. We did a bunch of ambient stuff. It was great. It was really great. But I was also just new to a bunch of lifestyle choices that I chose to make at that time. And I don't know if that was particularly particularly the best thing for Jason and I and our relationship, but <laughs> here we are. So the, that very first strapping album, we just, you know, you touched on wanting to express yourself creatively. How does it feel internally beyond the music of it? Was it just like oh, a big creative exhale for you? No, um, that one was like a booby prize in a weird way because I had been making demos for so many years trying to get signed. And the demos, when I first got signed to Relativity Records, it was before I worked with Steve. But because they were on the same label, that's how I met Steve. But when they had signed me, it was based on the strength of the demos that eventually became both Ocean Machine and and uh, Strapping. And at that time, I had both of them in one place. So it would go from a song like Skin Me to a song like Funeral. And Relativity Records deemed it to be a schizophrenic-sounding output. So they dropped me, but fortunately, they didn't charge me for the recordings that they had pitched in for, which was great of them actually and they let me go free and clear and so i had to try and shop the stuff and so i kept shopping i got signed to roadrunner records and they signed me and they brought me out to new york and you know gave me back rubs and crab dinners and then when i came home i um was recording for them and then i found out later that they had dropped me so i again was out without a label so i kept trying to shop ocean machine and trying to shop strapping and as one thing but Central Media contacted me and said, well, we don't want the Ocean Machine stuff, but we want the heavy stuff. And I was thinking, yeah, but they go together. And uh, they said, oh, we only want the heavy stuff. So I just bashed together a bunch of demos that have been in my world for years. And that became the first strapping record. And I remember when it came out, it was just like, oh, that's not right. You know, I don't want my trip to be like brutal metal. I mean, it's like, that's only a part of what I do. And I think that that probably played into why I became increasingly more dissatisfied with the success that strapping had mm. because i just was i was like yeah but it's it's like that's just that stuff i've got all this stuff too and they're meant to go together it's like it's like one thing but then sony in japan signed ocean machine but on the on the what's the word i'm looking for contingent on me starting my own record label so i started heavy devi records and then they put it out as a license and then I had both strapping and ocean machine. And then my whole career from that point has been this and that, this and that, this and that, this and that. It's it's for every city there was an ocean machine. For every alien there was a Synchestra deconstruction. There was a ghost. You know, um, yeah. it's even to this day, right? It's it's that that sort of binary split um, now is like I'm working on the moth and I've got dream piece. It's Maybe I internalized it to some degree, but it works for me now, so it's all good. Some of your some of your more modern albums, like like Empath, especially, I feel like was one where you were really starting to put all of those elements together in one place. Mm -hmm. So instead of mm -hmm. diverging into different outlets, you you sort of did it all together. Do you wish? I mean, I mean the 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 classic stuff like Ocean Machine, and I'm assuming when you say the first album, you're talking about heavy as a really heavy thing. 
like those yeah, would have been together. Would, yeah. would you have preferred that that to have happened, or or would you do that together if you could do it now? No, no, it's fine. I mean, it's it's it's. I don't believe that pining for change of anything that I've done or created in the past is is worth the effort. It's just it's that's what happened. It's it's what it is. Empath was consciously the combination of those two extremes, but that was what its concept was rooted in. More so than, oh, finally, it's coming together. Okay, okay. The idea of Empath was to create an album that explored aspects of the past in one place so I could kind of objectively get a sense of of what it had meant to creative mindset in the past, and then I could kind of move on from there. The, The desire to keep them all in one place dissipated pretty quickly. You know, once it once they were separated, I actually found it more convenient in a way to just focus one thing and then focus one thing. And Empath was, again, that was a conscious decision. Like, okay, so I'm going to write why and then put hear me right next to it yeah. because that's that's the whole purpose of that record is is that concept. But because I'm so driven by the concept of what each era of the work seems to ask for, I don't spend too much time analyzing it. You know, I just try to feel it intuitively. Uh, while we're on the subject of strapping, uh, recently Nick and I just spoke to Mr. Gene Hoagland. Uh, Amazing. How did uh, how did you guys first meet? We were both drunk. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> I was living in L.A. and I, we went to see, forget the band, I think it might have been Machine Head, actually, or, or Iron Maiden or Fear Factory or something. But it was in L.A. at the Palladium and a mutual friend came up and said, oh, you know, I'm here with my buddy Gene, and he really liked the first strapping record. Would you like to meet him? And I was like, yeah, man, I, I remember Death and, and Dark Angel. And um, so he came, I was shit-faced, and he was shit-faced. And he comes up and he's like, hey, Daddy, I, uh, I don't want to say how much I like that first record. And I was like, do you want to play in the new one? And he was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then we left, and I called him the next day, and he didn't remember it. <laughs> I was like, hey, man, we met yesterday. This is Dev, and you said you'd play on the next record. And he goes, did I? <laughs> I was like, yeah, man, he did. So, And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so so we started jamming. You know, we did like two or three jams for the, the demos I'd made for City, which were really comprehensive. It was like I had the drum parts written out, and everything was like, that's what City's going to be. Yeah, then I had my buddies come down from Vancouver, Jed and Byron, and, and away we went. I asked Gene if he's ever struggled on drums at all because it just seems so effortless. And the first uh, song that he named was uh, Oh My Fucking God by Strapping. Man, that he yeah. uh, didn't ever, never look forward to playing that. Is, 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 yeah, man. Did, uh, was that challenging did, for you as well? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I didn't have to play that. But, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I think that like Gene is, as we all know, just one of the one of the premier uh, drummers and one of the finest metal drummers that's ever existed, right? But at the same time, it's not an easy thing for him to do. I think anybody else playing that, it would have just sounded like roller skates in a closed drive. <laughs> but no, you know, it's funny because I think back to musicians that I've had the fortune of playing with, Gene being one of them, of course, and. I think that you you find each other at intersections in your lives where you know you're there and you your your whole trip just lines up and then you know you keep going right and it's like I chose to have kids and and that changed my life entirely and 
the way I look back at strapping and the way I look back at, at Gene in, in particular is people say, okay, well, because I'm not doing strapping anymore, maybe I've got some aversion towards it. And, you know, I can understand why people would think that because I was pretty vocal about that sort of thing back in the 90s. But no, I'm super proud of it. It's exactly where I was, man. I, I, I put every bit of effort I could possibly put into making records into those records. I'm damn proud of them. And Gene was just a force of nature, and he was just nobody else that was a strapping drummer. Like, I mean, Adrian helped me out on the first record, but it wasn't what Gene did. And, you know, it's, but it's also like it's like a dozen eggs. There's a, there's a period there where, you can make a great omelet and there's after a while where you're like, man, I, you know, we can't eat this now, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So well, well put. <laughs> so technical, technically speaking, Devin, what would you say is the most challenging song that you've constructed? Well, there's a bunch of them that are a pain in the ass. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd say that the entirety of singularity would be a hell of a thing. I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why do you do this to yourself? <laughs> well, I wish it, I wish it was as simple as me choosing to do it, man. But I just like I start writing, and as I'm writing, I just you know I never know what's going to come out. I never know what's going to come out. You know, it's like here's right before we were on the phone with each other. This is you know I'm like where we got here. But you know I never you know I didn't plan to do that. It's just you just you just follow it where it leads, and if it wants to be a twenty minute long thing then that's what you got to do it's i've always been of the mindset i think i said it earlier where where artists are in service of the music and your your role is to try and get out of the way of your creative intuition and there's a lot of ways that you can do that and i think the process of figuring out which way is right for you is where is where your identity lies right i think that for example one way of getting out of your own way creatively is to smoke a bunch of dope and <laughs> drink a bunch of booze right and then you're in this state where your intuition is is freed up but also at that point what you're responding to is a, a frame of mind that's arguably not the most efficient thing for for being in your mid-50s right so so i think that the other side of that coin is well how do you find ways to get out of your own way if that isn't something that's that's you're you're, you're you feel you're best suited for anymore and that's everybody's different like there's some people you know willie nelson no one's gonna say to willie nelson you know hey man you're you're doing that wrong that's his process and he's found it and it works for him right he like smokes dupe smokes dope and kicks people's ass in jujitsu like <laughs> 75 years old right but for me i find that the sensitivity that i possess that allows me to to do what I do is often really quickly kneecapped by any number of these techniques that one would argue is a way to get out of your way. So I've had to experiment with a ton of shit, you know, whether or not it's just exercising or eating different or meditation or taking myself out of the scene or putting myself back in the scene or like, I don't know, man. And I think that the the result of that is going to be a career of just me trying to figure it out. And then one day I'm just dead like this. <laughs> That's how it works, you know what I mean? It's like, and I think that um, with that in mind, uh, you're probably best to take the time to enjoy the sunset if it's a nice one. For many years, I've spent thinking that the work was of such fundamental importance that it overshadowed everything else in my life. Friends, relationship, family, kids, whatever, health, 
because there's a romantic notion of being, you know, a scientist or something like this. <laughs> but at this point in my life, I'm like, no, man, it all has to play ball with each other. And the things that are in my life that are more important than that, your family, your health, your friends, like take time to, to, to be with that as well, because life's short, you know, I just lost a buddy last week. It's like, right. and these things happen, right? So but the process of figuring that out is what the music's about. So there's no spilt milk. It's not like I look back at at the past, for example, with would you have preferred to put both styles together from the beginning? And uh, you know, my my path involved needing to figure that out. So no no big deal, right? Well, when it comes to inspiration, you know, it can be very abstract and fickle. Uh, do you ever draw inspiration from non-musical mediums, maybe a painting or something like that? Not a painting, no. I've never been particularly moved by visual art. I mean, a lot of it I love, but it's not, you know, I don't see things in the same way that I hear things. It, I see it, but it doesn't affect me in the same way. Uh, but nature, very much. So much of the work is involved by locale. I love the rain. I love mountains. I love the desert. I love uh, snow. I love isolation. And the grandeur of geology for one but also uh the sky you know the universe is is where the humility that i think you'd be foolish not to accept by looking at what surrounds us is really where the the scale of the music that i write is is rooted in and so it's something that i see but it's also something that you participate in right and and in the same breath, like, I mean, I'm just not a movie fan. Like, I just, other than Dark Crystal when I was eight. Mm. <laughs> a lot of times people are like, man, you got to see this film. And I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, man. And a lot of times, too, the the films that I'm that I'm encouraged to watch are just emotionally so demanding that at the end of the day, I just want to watch, you know, YouTube people yeah. Make, yeah. Making, making cakes or something. It's like. I don't I don't have the emotional tenacity at the end of a long day to participate in a, in a fucking drama or a horror movie. I just I've never I like hate horror movies, man. It's like <laughs> you know, it's just it yeah. really bums me out. And it's not because I think that they're not done well. I don't think that they're important. It's got nothing to do with that. It's just it's I can't shake it. And I've got so much going on during the day that if I'm stuck with imagery, mm. it seems counter it seems like contradictory because I don't, you know, I'm not affected by art, but I'm super f affected by it. I'm not affected by it positively. Right, too much, right, yeah. But I I'm affected you. by it negatively a lot, right? So who knows? Speaking of the way, you know, things affect you, I've always been intrigued when you talk about in, in other interviews your synesthesia. So the way that you, uh, in particular music, you perceive it, um, not just orally, but with color and, and, and other things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that it's become a topic of conversation recently because it's one of those things where I never thought about it. I never questioned it, right? I always just wondered why why I felt it hard to relate to other musicians in some ways. Because I never... It's not that I didn't understand things theoretically because I went to school for it to some degree. You know, high school, of course, but also music lessons on the side. But it always just seemed like just a really weird way to describe what I was doing. Like I'd play something and someone's like, "Oh yeah, that's a it's got a you know a, a ninth and a, a flattened third and 
it's based in Lydian or, or and I'm just thinking, man, that's like that's like as opposed to tasting the food. Because when you taste the food, your brain does all the work. It's like, oh, it's like it tastes like a strawberry. But you could pull apart that description in, in a ton of ways, you know, but it seems like such a pain in the ass to be like as opposed to it tastes like a strawberry, it's like, well, it's got a sweetness, but there's also a, a tanginess and there's a there's a certain amount of acidity that you know what I mean? I'm just like, ah. So when I'm cooking or when I'm eating, I'm thinking this needs a strawberry. I don't think as much it needs all the things that comprise the descriptors that English language would put together for what a strawberry is. It seems like it would be really slow. So when I'm writing and I think this needs to feel more like <laughs> my grandma's house. Let's take a real, you know, okay, well, what is it? Well, it was like had this weird smell and there was a lot of red and, you know, they had a moose head on the wall and, you know what I mean? And it had a real emotional timbre to it that I can identify with a series of notes by hearing it much more than I could say, okay, well, in order to describe that house, we're going to want to start with a chromatic ascension from a low note to a high note but it's going to have to be this because you know and i and i you know i don't mean to sound disparaging towards it because that's not my intent i only do that just for the drama of it because there's a lot of people that that's exactly how that makes sense to them but what i'm saying is i'm not one of them to me in order to describe things musically i go from the point of view of what does that feel like to me and the sound of certain musical passages feels a certain way to me and you could even make that really practical and say okay why does it feel that way to you because maybe it doesn't feel that way to other people and i can say okay well from my point of view it feels that way for me because i heard a series of notes when i was a kid that adhered itself to an emotional experience therefore when i hear that series of notes it brings me back to that so if i want to utilize that emotion i'll use that series of notes but the thing that i think translates in that is that the the emotion i'm trying to put across is is a human thing it's not specific to me so i think even on some level if people don't understand or, or like the music they may in some instances be able to sort of glean the same thing that i was trying to put across it's and that's the best way for me to describe synesthesia i mean i think it's often described as a a, a cross collateralization of emotion and sensory information so you know in a real basic way pink feels happy gray feels depressed you know that's a that's a basic way of saying it but i think that that becomes an abstraction to people really quick and it becomes like someone saying oh um syntax in japanese is is different in than english it, it you know until you hear why it, it's just it's just an abstraction and so the why for me is throughout my life the sensitivity that i possess as a as an artist has adhered certain sounds to certain experiences that i had that coincided with those sounds and so i internalized how that made me feel and so when i go to represent that emotion i subconsciously probably draw from those experiences and then illustrate the work with things that are based in that and then when people hear it, there's a good chance that they're getting that sense of what that emotion is just based on the fact that there's, what, 12 emotions that humans share? 
you know <laughs> right there's right. like nuances of it but it's you know you're angry you're sad you're happy it's joy you're horny you're depressed you know what i mean it's like there's a spectrum of that but really it's like we're apes right so i think that i think that it's just a different way of communicating that i think there's a lot more people that probably participate in that or could participate in that than maybe is given credence for i don't think it's it's a skill set that can't necessarily be learned i guess is my my point yeah and i'm sure a lot of people experience it to different levels as well it's just totally for you it seems to be very there's a clarity that you you seem to to get from it well i think that clarity can be extended to anything if you can identify it within yourself I think that's the main thing. It's just identifying what's going on. Like if you're feeling something, if you're thinking something and you're able to identify that you're feeling it or thinking it, that's the first step. We've already talked about the dark crystal and how you were interested in puppetry. Did you design uh, the Ziltoid puppet? I did, but the first shitty looking one, <laughs> the one that looks like a, like a sock puppet. Like I made him out of clay and put the googly eyes in him and like, did it all up and thought it was going to be awesome put my old hair on it from strapping which <laughs> was creepy but then when we casted it out of silicone it just didn't work as a puppet and so i had to keep with his hand grabbing the neck so i could put my hand further up so in some of the old ziltoid things you'll see him grabbing his neck and every time i try to make it sound like he's gagging he's like ah right but it's like it was awful. And so when we finally came to do the second Ziltoid record, which was a, a super uh, paper thin excuse for me just to afford to make the real puppet. Like the record is <laughs> cool, but it was just it was just so I could get the budget to make the puppet, basically. And so <laughs> I had my buddy, uh, Chris Devitt, who uh, works in film in Vancouver. He works on all sorts of monster films. You know what I mean? That's what he does. He makes creatures and and he was you know he appreciated the first zilto record so he said hey you know if you want to do a real one i was like do i holy shit man so we put together the the one that was in the ztb things online that you know his eyes moved it was like for real dude i got to do that whole ztv thing where i was the puppeteer and i had the headset mic and the screen underneath the the stage just like the dark crystal thing and i it didn't take me long to realize how much doing that sucks it's like you know because your arm's tired and you're sweaty and you're trying to talk at the same time and but i think you know this is a good place for me to to put in a fundamental part of my creative process is i gotta try things to know whether or not they work for me and then i'll go down rabbit holes and i'll be like i'll take it as far as i can possibly go and then just be like nah and then the people that are involved with her like dude I'm like, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. I thought I'd like it. I don't like it, right? And, and so, but that keeps happening. And that was another example of that I was like, no, I'm going to be a puppeteer, man. And then I did it, and I was like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that second puppet the one that has the dreads? The from from like your actual dreads? They all did, man. All all. Oh, the, all of them did. Okay. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's there's a there's a box. Um, floating around a rehearsal space in Manchester right now, a cardboard box that cryptically just says hair written on top of it. <laughs> and that's, and that was that, that was that, man. It's awful. <laughs> so Devin, uh, something I like to ask everyone again, just to wrap up here. Uh, have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? 
No. <laughs> hey, you never know. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I guess it depends on the distinction. Like, I've never seen a ghost. I've never, nothing like that has ever really been. And I, it's not like I, I, I deny the existence of that because, you know, there's people that I, I know and respect and trust that, that have had that. But I'm just not, I guess I'm not receptive to it necessarily, right? Um, but when I was a kid, there's, you know, there's all sorts of lucid dreaming and things like that. But I don't think that necessarily falls into the same category. But yeah, man. I mean, I think when I was younger, I was so dissatisfied with my life that I kept waiting and hoping that, you know, aliens would come pick me up or, you know, some celestial angel with suspiciously large breasts would show up or whatever, right? <laughs> but uh, no, man. Uh, regrettably, <laughs> regrettably, <laughs> things have been pretty rooted in, in reality for me. And you still lucid dream? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Meditation's a big part of my life now. And that allowed me to kind of relegate some of these things that at one time I maybe would have considered to be veering into the paranormal into a place that I can now sort of quantify as being something other than that. I think, as we had said earlier, the process of being or becoming more aware of, of what's going on in your mind uh, allows me at least to, to draw a connection back to what it's potentially rooted in. So when I was younger, when I was much less aware of, of what I was thinking, I would have things that happen, you know, like as a human being, brains are weird, right? Like sometimes you, you just hear things or see things or, or, or what have you. And that is certainly not helped by smoking a bunch of dope as well. Right. <laughs> and then, uh, but then when I started switching that over to just sort of trying to sit with my thoughts more and just try to, and by no means am I anywhere close to being sorted in that sense, but it's it it helps. I was able to say, oh, okay, well, there's that, and there's that, and maybe the reason that was happening was because of this, and you know. And as a result of that, man, I I I don't think that any people who who have those sorts of experiences, I don't take that away from them. In fact, there's. I remember being in Texas at one point, and we had a a bus driver. And we went to his dad's house, you know, middle of Texas, really like Texas personified yeah. this place, right? And the guy's dad got really hammered and he was like, give me your hand, give me your hand. And the bus driver's like, oh, he does this all the time when he gets hammered, right? And he took my hand and proceeded to tell me all this shit about my life that I was like, and my buddy's just like, yeah, he just he's done that ever since we were kids. <laughs> and so my my point i guess i'm trying to make is i think that the nature of reality is far beyond me at the very least to <laughs> to understand or quantify let alone you know but because of that i certainly don't take away the idea that those sorts of things exist like supernatural occurrences or hauntings or or you know psychic abilities or any of these things it's just it's it's, I don't have them. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah, man, maybe. That's where I was maybe getting Maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Maybe it sucked. Every time you shake somebody's hand, you're like, oh, shit. You know? <laughs> this guy's crazy. <laughs> this guy's wild. <laughs> if anything, I got that. I'm like, oh, this guy's fucking bananas. Right? But, uh... <laughs> so, yeah, it's, all, it's not too difficult to, to tell sometimes. Yeah, I don't think that's a paranormal thing. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that dude's a banana, you know? <laughs> 
Well, Devin, man, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Just to put a, bit, a bow on everything, uh, just tell folks what's on the horizon for you. Uh, I got so many things I'm working on. <laughs> I think the best way to describe what's coming up next, I mean, of course, I've got a symphony and ambient music and I'm making crazy films and 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 I'm making heavy stuff and I'm making melodic stuff and all these things. And I, you know, I like gardening and, and taking care of my parents as they get older and trying to navigate a, a dying industry with weird music. But I think the thing that underlines all of that is I'm trying to take things slower than I used to. And not in terms of a do-do-do-do-do-do-do sort of trip, but more like I used to get so hyper-focused on one aspect of my day that I would suck the fun out of it by negating everything else that I had to do just because I couldn't break away from the work. And again, I think that's a romantic thing people have in their mind it's like they're so into their work that everything goes by the wayside but for me i think it's just unhealthy now and so i tend to now really enjoy like in the morning i got a couple things that i do and then you know and then i then i work on a song and then i make some lunch and then i get some exercise and then and i go back and do another project and later on in the day maybe i want to do some filming stuff and then maybe i work on a thing that i was working on with a buddy and then you know, go spend some time with the family and, you know, and it's like that type of moderation with what I've been working towards allows me now to recognize that just because I'm not hyper-focused on one thing doesn't mean that it doesn't get done. It just means that over a longer period of time, more things come together. And without the, the pressure that I put on myself for having to finish things in the moment, um, I find that the nature of the work has changed as well. It's become a lot more intentional. I think what would happen with the, the way that I used to do things is I would pound through things just because I was so goal-oriented. And then at the end of it, I would have maybe three or four songs on a record that I loved. And then a bunch of stuff that I just I needed to write just so I could get it finished. Uh, there's a certain amount of that that was put upon me, which is the nature of touring over the past couple of decades. But now without that, you know, post-pandemic, it's like things are fucked up. So you have to rethink how you do things. And part of it is, you know, do I want to be on tour all the time? Or do I just want to see where things go for the first time ever? And that process is helping with patience, but it's also yielding a bunch of stuff that I didn't expect. And I, I really think it's, really think it's fucking great, man. Who knows what other people will think, but in the spirit of following your creative intuition, I can't spend too much time second guessing what people are going to think about what I'm doing now. Well said, man. Thank you so much, uh, Devin, for giving us some of your time. And just before I let you go, if you don't mind, can yeah. you just give me a quick radio style? This is Devin Townsend, and you're listening <laughs> to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. Monsters, school Madness. for this. I did, yeah. <laughs> I, you got to remember, I failed, though. Hey, everybody, this is Devin Townsend, and you're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. 23 degrees out right now, 21 by the water. How did you fail? That was amazing. That was great. You got an A plus in my book. <laughs> All right, Devin. Thanks so much, man. You have a great rest of your day. Yeah, for you real, guys. Thank thanks you. for the opportunity. Amazing. Right. You have a good one, man. Bye bye. Send me a link, man. That'd be great. We Cheers. will do. Bye bye. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Devin. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters Madness and magic. <laughs>
Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.